Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the opportunity to interview a coworker, Wade Stotts of Louder with Crowder fame. Wade and I discussed his journey from Texas to Canon Press, and he describes his time at the Louder with Crowder show and all the things he learned about media and how we plan on incorporating that into Canon Press. If you're new and you enjoyed the episode, or if you're a regular listener, I want to encourage you to join the Canon app. This is one of the biggest ways that you can show your support for Canon and to Canon. This is based on everyone's support so far and how well the app has done. While not perfect, it's funding a future for Canon that we are super excited about. So, so know that as you guys support through the app and you can get all of that content, know that, that we are stewarding it well. And we cannot wait to parlay that into added benefits in the future. So, without further ado, meet Canon's new employee, Wade Stotts. Okay, now welcoming on special guest, Wade Stotts to Canon Calls. Excited to be here. Wade, thanks so much for coming on. It's a privilege. Uh, Long time listener, first time <laughs> guest. <laughs> you, uh, you've been mentioned on this podcast once before. I have. I have. Joffrey Swait. Oh, that's right. Joffrey yeah. Swait. I met you two years ago. That's right. Yeah. You're now a new Canon employee. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was introduce the Canon audience that don't know you to who you are. And then also, as I said before, I bet there are people who are very excited that this episode's happening. How did you get from where uh, you came from a very notable media place Mm -hmm. to here? Yeah. And that's an interesting journey. Sure. It's been great. So you're from Arkansas. You went to a Christian college there. Yeah. Christian college, uh, Washita Baptist University, a little Baptist school in uh, Arkadelphia, Arkansas. um, It's not real. Which is a fake town name. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Technically, every town name is made up, but that one just sounds made up. Yeah. Extra made up. <laughs> yeah. Arkadelphia? Arkadelphia. So I guess Arkansas mixed with uh, brothers, like Ar- like Delphos. I don't know, man. Arkadelphia. Yeah. But I was born in Moralton, Arkansas. And uh, my dad is was and is a music minister at a church, at different churches. So we moved around several different places, most of the time in Arkansas. Did most of my growing up in Northeast Arkansas, a little town called Jonesboro, Arkansas, where Arkansas State is. Sounds like where a cult is. Jonesboro? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> we changed it from Jonestown after all of those people drank the, uh, was it, was it Jonestown that drank the Kool-Aid? I, I, don't, so. know. I, I don't know. I should have done research. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did most of my growing up in uh, Northeast Arkansas and then went to a college in South Arkansas, met my wife there. Okay. Um, yeah. So did most of my growing up there. I lived in Orlando for a little while. Florida. Orlando, Florida. Yes, exactly. Was there for a couple of years. Went what, did to, you, what did you do there, Wade? What did I do there? So I went to RTS Orlando, <clears throat> Reformed Seminary in Orlando. I was there for a year. Okay. Got to study with the great John Frame, Okay, which was a real pleasure. And then I was there for a year. I did seminary for a year. And then we found out that my wife was pregnant. So put a pause on seminary financially. Couldn't do both at the same time. So I just did odd jobs around Orlando. Ended up working at a like storage center, like a behind the desk at like a self storage place. I worked at a bookstore for a while, and then uh, ended up at Ligonier Ministries, 
Okay. Worked there. Uh, I answered phones there for about a year, almost a year. And then I uh, got a call from a friend who said, Steven Crowder is looking for an audio guy. Would you be okay with me throwing your name in? And I said, okay. This is an Arkansas friend. This is Arkadelphia. Th- yeah, this is a college Ar- Arkadelphia, Arkansas yeah. friend. Yeah. Yeah. Good friend named Ben. Okay. And he just, uh, yeah, he linked me up with those folks. Uh, and then within a couple of months, I was in Texas working at the Crowder Show. Dallas, yeah. Okay. What did you want to do that you were at seminary that you then put on hold? What was the motivation for going to seminary, I suppose? Yeah. I, every job that I had held up to that point was in the church. Okay. So I was, I, in high school, I worked as like the music leader guy at a bunch of, in a bunch of different capacities at like a large church. So I would, I would lead the music for like the students or the college kids or whatever. It was like just kind of part of what I did. And then after college, I graduated and worked full-time at a church. And then, so seminary seemed like a pretty obvious next step. So I I just assumed that I was going to continue in ministry at some level. Nice. And yeah, seminary, and I had always admired John Frame. So I, I, I knew that whatever was coming up next, whatever the next step was, studying under John Frame would at least equip me in some way. And it has, I mean, it, it's, it's not been some kind of irrelevant, weird detour yep. <laughs> in my life, but it was a, yeah, it was a formative time. I re- really enjoyed that seminary time. Awesome. So you got the call, you moved mm-hmm. to Texas. Moved to Texas. And did you, at that time, is this a random detour for you? Were you still thinking ministry eventually? Well, when I was in Orlando, there was a time where I was applying to a, added a job application every single day. Like I applied to a different job every day. At, at, in at, church? In, in, in churches? And most of them were churches. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, it was just, I was trying to get a job wherever I could. And so I tried, I tried to get a job in, in ministry. Okay. <laughs> like I was, I was really trying to get into it. And at every turn, it just seemed like, okay, well, this isn't going to work out. There was one particular experience where I was interviewing at the same church for like three months. And uh, there was like factions that wanted me there and factions that didn't want me there. And it was this weird, dramatic thing. And at a certain point, I just had to go like, okay, well, it doesn't look like (laughs) ministry is the right thing right now. And just take that as, you know, I didn't stop applying or stop anything like that. But it was during this whole back and forth with this one church where I got a call about doing something very different, which is running sound conservative comedy show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is fun. Okay, yeah. so you got there, and then you were hired to do audio. Yes, was yes. it that limited in scope, or when you got there, was it like and everything else, <laughs> <laughs> and everything else? That's sort of how it, Canon hires people, right? Yeah. I, so the big need there was an audio person. It was kind of an immediate uh, need that they had. So I slid in there, was able to help out in that way, and there was always because it was a relatively small team. I think uh, the whole time I was there, it was it never got more than fifteen people or so. Okay. Because it was such a small team, it was just people grabbed you for whatever you could do. So if you showed some kind of capacity or even willingness to learn a new skill, it was like, okay, great, cool. So I was, I was like in the early days, they had a need to like do the overlays for some of the segments. And I didn't know anything. Like I learned Photoshop, like in a very stupid, like I barely knew what I was doing way. Uh, And then they found somebody else who could like actually (laughs) knew what they were doing and uh, got them done much quicker and it wasn't yeah. like we had to take a whole afternoon to watch like wait, wait, wait. <laughs> slowly yeah, yeah exactly crop something out. tread water for <laughs> the whole time yeah so that was that was a sort of brief time where i was just yeah whatever they needed and i was happy to do it 
Um, but yeah, I, I, at that point had this kind of skill of doing audio was willing to do that, but it was also, I, I was excited about the prospect of being able to do some writing there. It wasn't something that I, they brought me on to do necessarily, but I was from the time I was in like high school, I was really obsessive about like sketch comedy, late night TV. I would just obsessively watch over and over and try to pick up patterns and figure out what made it work. And I bet I was the only Ligonier employee who would write like topical monologue jokes on my lunch breaks. <laughs> and I just saw it as like a, a writing exercise. Okay. Like I had read uh, Wordsmithy okay. and, and one of the things he talks about is like stretching before you run, uh-huh. that kind of thing. Just do, doing something that is very different from what you're about to do. So yeah, writing so like, a sonnet before you do your fiction. Right. Or like before you write or, a blog, yeah, right. <laughs> write a sonnet. Uh, and that was, that was kind of how I saw it. It was like, I wanted to write 10 jokes a day. So I just wrote 10 jokes a day and most of them were garbage, but it was like, I, at least comedy writing. One of the things that it's good at teaching you is how to eliminate needless words, because if there's one extra syllable in there that somebody has to trip over, then the laugh doesn't come. And there's not this kind of magical reaction where somebody enjoys it. It's like, oh, I can see what they were going for, but that's not the, <laughs> that's not the same yep. thing as an actual laugh. So working through the mechanics of that was always an interesting thing to me, at least. And then seeing that as killed in the Legionnaire warehouse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was, I didn't really tell anybody I was doing that. (laughs) Yeah. You're trying it out on Legionnaire customer callers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't my table talk magazine here yet? (laughs) Well, have you heard that, uh, university of Tennessee has changed their mascot? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's an awkward transition to the call, but I did it every time. Yeah. So, okay. So you, so the opportunity presented itself and like, yeah. it's, it probably was pretty interesting for them to get an audio guy who writes jokes in his spare time. Yeah. Yeah. It was an odd, it was an odd thing for me too. Cause I was, when I got there, I was like, they stuck me in the third chair for one of the behind the paywall shows. Okay. Um, just as a, like, well, let's try this out, you know, <laughs> uh, which is fun. It, it, that's, that's the kind of attitude that, it, that they had there. It was very much a like experiment, like, Hey, Wade's new, let's stick him in the chair and see how it goes. And that was a lot of fun. It turned out well. And then one of the other things that I ended up working on was the apology video that we ended up doing. It was like this, uh, I forget how long exactly it was. But it was a bunch of apologies for, it was after the Vox Adpocalypse thing. Okay. And the Vox people came after the show. Anyway, we did this long thing where it was, the whole idea was apologizing for all of the things that he had done, but really it's just repeating the jokes. Yeah. And some of them were actual old jokes that we had done. And the other was, others were things that I was able to like add in as jokes. Okay. Um, so that was kind of a hidden disguised way of me writing jokes yep. <laughs> was me just putting, putting in jokes that were supposed to have been told in the past. Okay. Uh, so it was just a little sneaky thing that an I was opportunity. Able to do. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun. So yeah, I was able to stick that in and then, you know, later on hear compliments about that video from like comedians that I'd admired for a long time, like Nick DiPaolo and stuff like that, where people were like, I love that apology video. And just go, wow, that's, that's a cool thing to be able to contribute comedy. And that one of the first things I was able to do was successful. People liked it. And people that I had looked up to in comedy enjoyed it as well. One recurring theme that I have with guests sometimes just is, is the topic of media, mm-hmm. media consumption. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's been a sort of um, 
democratization. Mm. So we're not all like limited to ABC, NBC's and CBS's mm-hmm. 8 p.m. slots. Right. You know, and not everybody is fighting for those mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. So when you worked on a show such as the Crowder show, mm-hmm. it brought s- several views to yes. you guys saw yeah. several views. A handful or two. I imagine um, if you were to like compare those to views of shows that you guys saw yourselves competing with. Mm-hmm. First, what were the shows that you saw you guys competing with? That's an interesting question. I think I think that we got to see the transition from it's been happening for a long time, but basically that podcasts have supplanted the official late night TV shows. Yep. The late night TV shows just sort of multiplied and all as they multiplied all began to sound very similar. Yep. Where it wasn't it wasn't about who could make the funniest joke it was about like getting in political digs or even if it wasn't about being getting political digs it was trying to stay away from politics and being just silly and like youth group games yeah so i think that that was that was at least the kind of stated niche that we found ourselves in was the late night comedy world and we we were able to see i think while i was there 2020 happened to late night comedy where everybody moved from being in these, you know, Jimmy Fallon went from being in 30 Rockefeller Plaza to sitting in his basement. Yeah. And his guests were like his kids. And so he, he, moved, he moved from being propped up in a lot of ways by the NBC Corporation, same with Seth Meyers, same with all these others. And then they were just in their home doing YouTube videos. Right. Like everybody else was. Right. And so... They were already being judged that way, but any differentiation, any like high budget background or better camera or better distribution, like they still had the distribution system, but it was all being distributed and competing on the platform with these other smaller shows. And, and so that's, that is where we saw ourselves. We saw ourselves as competing with late night TV talk shows, you know, and it was organized that way. It was like jokes meet segment interview outro which is essentially what a late the structure of a late night tv yep. show but it was only on the internet right uh, so that was the full show and then we would chop it up and put it in a bunch of different pieces and a lot of people now they think of themselves as watching like when jimmy fallon was really big i don't consider him like as big as he used to be yep. it was that people would watch the big clips the next day on youtube on on youtube and so YouTube became where people were used to watching funny content, that kind of content. Even if it was that kind of light, you know, frivolous sort of thing, that was how you got your comedy. That was how you got your current events seen from a humorous perspective or whatever. And that was where we grew up. You know, it's like that it was the um, whatever the line from the Batman movie is, you know, the uh, you merely like came into the darkness. Yeah. I was born in it and that, whatever it was. <laughs> I watched that movie one time and then yeah. I just heard that quote. Well, and then it's, I feel like the verbal meme of the, the guy in the yeah. pink, pink tights. The guy in the pink tights. <laughs> Bane and then the guy, Bane doing this. And oh, then... yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, listeners may not know this about Jake. I've just taken over. <laughs> listeners may not know this yeah. about Jake, but once in a while he'll just say something as a meme, like yeah. some visual, like verbal meme and then say it out loud. Yeah. And then if it goes well in the room, he'll go make it on <laughs> On Canva. On Canva. <laughs> I don't Which make a great. lot. Don't make a lot. <laughs> I don't make a lot of memes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. It's, it's a double two stage thing that uh, yes. you know, usually goes through one. Well, you're just feeling how the room feels Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Um, as as a joke writer, I totally understand. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's me. That's my so, my brand. I do want uh, what I was yeah, so basically I would assume with the sort of traffic that you guys saw, for all intents and purposes, you it would be safe to say you worked on a big time mm-hmm. comedy late night show. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's pretty wild because I always thought of those things as being it's essentially what happened was people had to give you permission to make it or to make the show you wanted to make. So you had to pitch your show to NBC and if they were willing, they would give it to you. But this was one of those shows that just grew up without permission from a lot of people. Like it was not approved. Exactly. It wasn't approved and it didn't need to be. And so it was fun to be able, that was the playground. It was, I, you know, the only audience was what made people in the room laugh. And then nobody, it didn't have to go past another thing. Like we, we were working, we had a contract with the blaze, but the blaze didn't like stand, they weren't standing out in their suits going like, wow, I don't like that. Or don't, this joke didn't work. And that was cool. You know, we didn't have the FCC and we didn't have the blaze. We didn't have any kind of the network, that kind of thing. And we had, you know, a good relationship with the boys the whole time I was there, which is great. But there was the, the only kind of voices in your head and the only kind of sort of uh, footsteps down the hall were the YouTube themselves, right? And so the only kind of barrier that you had was the platform on which you were uploading these things. And so we're all using the distribution system that's been built, assuming that that's going to, that they're going to do what they said they were going to do carry it on, take the content that we're making because, uh, you know, in an ideologically neutral world that doesn't exist, you take whatever is getting the views, whatever has the, whatever has the momentum behind it, the audience behind it. And you put that up front and you go, Oh, people are interested in this. Well, let's serve it up to more people, give it some more momentum. But since ideological neutrality doesn't exist, there has to be at some level, some, some, somebody is making a decision because it's not just, you know, even an algorithm is designed by a person to put this or that yep. in front of people and, and make sure that that keeps going. The, recommend, the YouTube recommendation system is this complicated algorithm and everybody's chasing this thing as if it's some kind of natural law that we can't quite put words to or like, the, but, but it's all very personal. And it, again, it's designed by a person and has, even the algorithm has a worldview because it's coming from people. And, and we saw that. We saw that in, well, we made this kind of content with this kind of thumbnail, this kind of title. It went further. This, there was an obvious drop off because, well, that was a little bit too far or had a word in it. Talked about a topic that people weren't able to review in time. So let's go ahead and hold that while it's in review. Yeah, it, it, it's an odd thing because that is... That's been the battle. The ba- I mean, I, Anthony Cumi has talked about this. The battle was for a long time when Anthony did his show on the radio, the battle was always with the FCC. It was always this kind of line that you were flirting with and, and they made a bunch of bad calls on, the, on that show. But, it, because that was, but that was the thing that they tried to do. They tried to push the FCC guidelines and then go, well, I mean, we technically were within it. And so they, that, was, that was the tension of the show was kind of flirting with that line. And now it's not the FCC and it's not even really YouTube. It is just because there, there are a lot of people who may still have a YouTube account, but are canceled for different reasons. And, and there's yep. this kind of cultural 
oppressive feeling that I don't want to step a little bit too far because you never know what clip's going to be taken. It is funny. Uh, once in a while, I'll see this clip or this joke got taken up by the Young Turks or got taken up by something. So it was like some joke I wrote or some joke, some sketch that we did that got picked up and commented on from a bunch of different negative angles and people piling on. And I would go like, that isn't the most offensive thing that we did. At least I didn't think of it that way. But it, they would tend to jump on the stuff that wasn't funny or wasn't as funny. Okay. So like the stuff that they would grab was the stuff that was like, ah, because if they play the thing that is funny, then they get, you can't argue with a joke. Yep. If the joke works, you can't come in and argue with something because if you're arguing, then you're not being funny. You don't want to be marketing as like the guy trying to poo-poo the joke. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's like- when, It's a tough look. Exactly. And that's, that's why anytime, I mean, you're a Bill Burr fan. Yeah. Anytime Bill Burr does some kind of like racially charged thing, people try to comment on it, but they always look stupid because he's funnier than they are. Right. Uh, and so I, that's, that's what we, so, so the goal was always like, make it funny. And people tended to not get, even if they were bothered by it, they couldn't get as much mileage out of it. Yep. Now you were kind of describing like there's a sense to the YouTube algorithm that we're all on the hunt for. Yeah. And I would just, you know, that, that feels like even what we do to some degree. Absolutely. On the daily. Yeah. But I, during your time there, you guys saw like beyond sort of dealing with, uh, the algorithm, you guys saw like the YouTube board kind of also come at you. Like you weren't right. just dealing with the algorithm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk about that? What was, what was that like? I mean- it makes it from a distance. It made it feel very punk rock. Sure, you know from here, there are several guys in the audience in the office here that you know you you sort of feel a, a sort of kindred spirit with people that are you know pushing the you know pushing against the man with just like good old conservative yeah stuff. Like it's very fun. So yeah, absolutely. And I th I think that it was odd to know that the like biggest corporation in the world was watching the show yeah. like they had an assigned person who would watch every episode yeah <laughs> you know yeah uh, and know, knowing that is an odd feeling and but it's also sort of like i'm, I'm not I, I wasn't right like i don't know i don't know it's, it's hard for me to really diagnose whether that was in my mind as i was coming up with some like some sketch you know for the guy um, what's that for the guy or gal watching. yeah exactly i'm i don't know if that impacted what i was willing to say or do i don't think it did but it's hard to really didn't, imagine yeah didn't, you didn't seem to do a very good job if it did right. steer clear yeah <laughs> right right but that was the show that did pe people say this in right-wing media people say that a conservative president is bad for right-wing media people say that like because you're in the you're in power people see that as like well fox news is in power because the president or like, because George Bush is president, yep. which is odd, but that's how, that's how the media yep. tends to talk. That's how like behind closed doors, the right wing media is like, well, you know, it stinks that so-and-so it stinks that Obama's president, but it's really good for book sales <laughs> yep. because everybody wants to buy the Obama blueprint or, uh, you know, Ben Shapiro's book about Obama is going to do well because Obama's in power. Yep. He's perceived as the underdog yep. nation of rebels. Right. But, that was the show that did its best numbers when it was under fire. Um, so the election of Donald Trump, that show 
did really well. Like uh, on election night was when Mug Club was launched. Yep. And it did very well. It brought it brought in a lot of people. People joined into the team because it wasn't a like you know I, because it wasn't about uh, fighting whoever's president. And it, it became this movement. And I think that that was what attracted people. Same with the Mug Club quarantine thing. So it was like when COVID hit and the economy tanked, we just said, okay, we're going to serve more people. So let's just give away a month of it for free. And so people were able to join in with that. And so there was this movement. So I, I think that that was the saving grace of what was going on there was that there were people who were excited about it. And it didn't matter, like whatever YouTube wanted to do about it, there were enough excited people about the show that was going on that they would join for movement reasons. And that's, that's a, powerful, a powerful motivator. It's not just like, well, I am going to sign up for this service because of a certain amount of content that I'm going to get or the promise of content or the promise of future things. There really is a movement motivation. And uh, I, think, I think that as people... The same goes for the Canon app, right? So it's like people people join up because they're going, great, I want to support Canon and I want to be able to be yep. on that team. Yep. And being on that team looks a lot different from just buying a product. It actually, having having some kind of subscription and knowing I'm supporting what they're doing is a different motivation than just I want to make, and, and you know, it, there is value in yep. the actual product. Sure. So, but if I, I'm looking out the window here, look, if I buy Heaven Misplaced and get my copy of it, I am helping with the work of Canon, even if I don't read it immediately, I am right. immediately helping with that work. And I think that that was a big motivation for fans of that show. And it was really cool. It's a, it's a cool thing to see motivated fans, people who love the content and want to keep things going. So it, it, there wasn't a, and the reason I'm talking about this it's, at some level is relevant to your question because it was about YouTube itself, right? So yep. there's, there's a certain amount of, YouTube has a certain amount of power but the audience that's there, the kind of enge- they can't adjust public opinion like that, right? So, so the, the, yes. reason, the reason that they're scared to ban a large, large channel, the reason that, they, that these big channels don't a lot of times get banned, they just might get like certain knobs get turned off yeah. and switches, yep. is because they're afraid of the fan base. Yeah. Because it's not good for anybody's stock for, uh, I think, Crowder's channel's at five and a half million now. It's not good for five and a half million people to just go, I watched that every day and this company is the, like, that's not good for stocks. That's not good right. for shareholders. Or um, ads. I mean, like that ad revenue, right. like daily five and a half million people right. floating about the site is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that there is a big decision that people will have to make, companies will have to make, where, whether they're going after the audience or whether they're going after some particular subset of the most angry part of a different audience. Are they okay with sacrificing a bunch of money from people who are paying customers and who are excited about the product for the most vocal minority, the tiny group, because they don't want those people to pitch a fit? And that's a decision that I think a bunch of companies are going to have to make. And it's a pretty human decision, right? I mean, you know, we've talked about the sin of empathy, right? And, and adjusting to the most vulnerable person or the loudest person or the biggest whiner in the room. Lowest common denominator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Adjusting to the immaturity. And I think that companies are having to decide that, right? And it's like, 
Coke comes out and says, try to be less white. And then their stock plummets and they go, I'm sorry. And then their stock goes back, you know, so they, they, the companies are trying to figure out how to be ideologically neutral and you just can't be. Well, it's interesting too, because I think you were describing there's a, um, so you guys had mug clubbers, Mm -hmm. is what you call them, mug clubbers. Barstool has the stoolies. Mm -hmm. There's a certain, there's a like rush to being a part of a subversive movement. For sure. And it's funny because YouTube and corporations similar, I feel like they try to tap into that rush. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But they're just a corporation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're yeah, yeah. not right. a, they don't have a fan base. Mm-hmm. They're a corporation. Right. Absolutely. And like messing with people like mug clovers. Mm-hmm could be costly to, you know what I mean? It's, it's right. very funny. And then, but they will try to always parlay it into like you mentioned Coca-Cola doing, it's like, no, no, no. We're also part of a movement. Join the movement, right. drink Coke. And it's like, well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's if even. If you really love black people, drink our, drink our drink. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, wor- our it's worse for YouTube. Right. Who is essentially a landline and like in yeah, terms yeah. of functionality. Right. No one is wearing a YouTube hat. Right. Like yeah, no yeah. one bought a YouTube hat to, today. <laughs> it wasn't purchased. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, well, there, there's, not, there, there's not a fan base. And fan base, it sounds sort of impersonal itself, but it really, yeah, movement is a better way of talking about it. I think that they don't necessarily, whatever their attempt to do the not, don't be evil thing. Yeah. Is just the same way that they're trying to not be a corporation. Like they're trying to yes. be a corporation without a product. Right. They're, tr- they're trying to do. They're trying to do like, well, Apple has pretty designs, but they're just a traditional, I have a product, you buy the product, yep, that sort of thing. Google does not do that. They sell the users as the product. Right. They sell Steven Crowder or they sell Mr. Beast or they sell whatever, uh, the Paul brothers. And Canon, that's, they sell Canon calls. They, excuse me. They sell Canon calls. Yeah. I should have mentioned that first. Yeah. Um, yeah. It took so, a while. <laughs> So I noticed. Right. No. And, and I think I just, as doing the show, I just didn't think of it. You know? Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and so they don't have a fan base because they are the delivery system. Like you said, it's like, and nobody goes like, this is a great road or like, man, this connection's really great on yeah. this phone call. Yeah. But people don't love the delivery system. People talk about Christians needing to build the delivery system. It's not because the delivery system is the thing that people are going to love. It's that the world has built their delivery systems and we're living on those. Yeah. And yeah, people, people don't love the delivery system. They love the content. And so what Google is doing is building a delivery system, but has no content itself. Uh, and Netflix tried to do that for years and then realized that the money was in building your own content and the delivery system. Yep. But YouTube, Google just hasn't figured out a way to actually make stuff. They don't, they don't do, they don't make things. They just have, they just build the roads and then take a lot of credit for it, but then they have the power to control who is who's able to use it to its fullest extent. Now, I want to catch people up to you getting here. Oh, yeah. So- Hey, I'm here. At some point, it had to have been maybe, what was 2018? 2019. Yes. Yeah, I started at the Crowder Show in 2019. Oh, okay. Is that what you're so, about? yeah, well, okay. Well, no, but I got a tweet, um, I oh, think okay. through the Canon account- Gotcha. That said something like, at Wade Stott, very cool that you mentioned at Douglas Wilson on the show. I think, and I think it was just that. I think I yes. have like, an, like every other day I'll check the at Douglas Wilson mentions. Right. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's really fascinating. 
Yeah. I will hunt down this fella. It, it turns out it was behind a paywall. Um, <laughs> right. So I didn't listen to it, but it yeah. was, I think it was a, uh, you did Wednesday or what? Yeah. Uh, we, we called it Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Yeah. I, I, I remember that. I, I had forgotten that until you mentioned it, but it was some illustration that Doug used where he said something like that the left wants the kind of diversity where you walk into a beautiful library with all sorts of different shapes and sizes and colors of books. But then when you open the book, they all say the same thing. And that was a really good concrete way of talking about what the left typically means by diversity. And so it stuck in my head enough to where I just mentioned it in conversation in passing. And yeah, people who love Doug resonated with that at some level and go like, oh, cool, that's, that's an amazing thing to see these worlds collide. So that happened, yeah. the tweet went out, and mm-hmm. then I, it was October, October 18th, yeah. 2019. And then I, oh, wow. and then I direct messaged you to talk to you about it. And then I yeah. saw where you were, which is not very far from where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And so we hung out on Christmas or around Christmas. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You came over to my, uh, my house, met my family. It was fun. Yeah. And then we hung out again the next summer, I believe. Uh, yes, actually, that's right. Right at COVID. COVID. It was March of 2020 Ren, that we hung out, hung out. Ren and I were in Fort Worth for yeah. GHC. Right. Which got called off early. <laughs> yeah. It. <laughs> w- do you remember the dates of that? It, it was like- It was as the first the, week of March. Like emergency order yes. was being called. Yes. And so it, yeah. it went out to Fort Worth and so our conference got shut down. But <laughs> that, uh, we had got barbecue. Yes. You met Ren. Yeah. And then- um, we just had a blast in Fort Worth. It was great. Yeah, barbecue. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. Barbecue. So, and then, you know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, guys in the office, we pay attention to, I mean, we're media, we are a media company, so we pay attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Guys liked the Crowder show and the little mm-hmm. bits we would catch. And then the election happened. Yes. Because yeah. the election did happen. The election happened in 2020. <laughs> right. And... Everybody that I knew, we were all watching crowd, the, the Crowder updates and everything yeah, else. So yeah. uh, was that a rush? Like how was, you, you weren't there for the 16, right? Right. No, okay. I, I started in 2019, in okay. uh, early 2019. Obviously. And then, uh, but yeah, I was a fan in 2016. I was, I watched, I think that was one of the first full shows that I watched. And it yep. was like the six hour 2016 election night live stream, just because I didn't have like cable. <laughs> So I didn't have cable. I was like, I'll just watch it on my iPad. Just yeah. watched uh, the yeah. Crowder show on my iPad. Had it on kind of in the background. Listened the whole time. And that was what solidified a lot in a lot of ways. My fanhood. Fanhood? Fandom. Fan, my fandom. Yep. Precisely. So um, that was that was where I was in 2016. Yeah. In 2020, I was able to be a part of the show, which nice. was a ton of fun. We ended up doing, um, I think like we were streaming like 12 out of a 24 hour period, <laughs> 12 hours out of a 24 hour block, we were on the air, which was just wild. Do you remember some of like the superlative stats as far as that goes? Like in terms of people covered, like doing coverage? Yeah. yeah. So we were that night beating all of the networks on, at it's least crazy. on YouTube. Right. So the, the coverage, the online coverage, we were, I think, competing with everybody and we were like, Back and forth at number one with ABC. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think at the peak, we were like near 600K live, wow. like wow. concurrent viewers, which is wild. I mean, we, we didn't know what to expect. I think we, leading up to that, had gotten some you know, really crazy cool numbers, like people just joining in and being excited about the, 
the show that was going on because it was leading up to the election, right? It's, it's hot times for, for right. any kind of political show or a comedy show. And then, yeah, that, that night was really fun. We had a lot of, it was, it was a way we were able to keep up with it and also hopefully provide some entertainment along the way so that it wasn't just everybody sitting around. Like it wasn't Fox news where we're all just going any more numbers, any more numbers. Yeah. And then like, well, this is an important election because of X, Y, Z. It wasn't, we tried to keep it up light fun. We had guests on, uh, that were funny guests. And then it wasn't shortly, it was probably like six weeks later. I think I came home the day before I came back to Texas the day before Christmas Eve. Okay. Yeah. Spent yeah, yeah. the Christmas Eve day. Yeah. You with just the hung Stotts. out at the, Stotts, at the Stotts place. <laughs> and then yeah, it was a blast. We had a lot of great conversations. Yeah. And I think it was the day after Christmas, which mm-hmm. was a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And you said, I'm going to visit Moscow on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that that was which the timeline. Yeah. The yeah. day that I got back. <laughs> so I returned to Moscow that Monday. And right. it turned out we were in airports at the same time. Right. I got there a few hours after you did. <laughs> yeah. Right. There, meaning here. Here. Yes. <laughs> right and here in Moscow, uh, I know. you spent three or four days. Yeah. With us yeah. Here. It was a blast. Uh, we just, in the course of our conversation, we just started talking about Canon. I got excited about it. I said, I want to visit Moscow. So my wife and I came up here. We brought one of our sons, left the other one with uh, my parents, and just hung out. Yeah. It was, it was a blast. I just, basically hung around here until people were like, Hey, why are you here? <laughs> um, yeah. which was a blast. And I didn't really know why it was the just usual I, tone of, of a soon to be higher. <laughs> you know, that's how, that's our posture to people were yes, considering. Exactly. Yeah. What, what in the world are you doing <laughs> here? Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's been really fun. So I, I then went back and essentially just quit my job there, came here. And so the quickness of that, like our conversation, we were, t- we were like hanging out, hanging out on Christmas Eve. I was here on the 20, whatever, seventh. Yep. And which is my anniversary, by the way. So we made that it a was, little, a little anniversary was, yeah. trip. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was very quick to come here right after that, yep. but also very quick. I started here then February, like early yep. February. So it was a pretty quick turnaround, but I was excited. I, I am excited, you know, and it's, it's been, uh, it's been a blast to be able to team up with folks that I've admired from afar for a long time. Like yeah. I, I've been reading books from Canon since I think, I think, I don't remember what the first title was, but it was at least like I was in college, okay. uh, reading, reading, uh, some, some of the books that are sitting on the shelves as I'm looking out of this window, which is pretty wild. So yeah, being able to bring those books to new people. And getting, seeing, seeing new folks have the same kind of light bulbs go off that I had when I was yep. first watching these videos on, like, on the Canon YouTube channel and reading these books. It's been really fun. I think Jess, too, was tired of, well, I mean, like, at least two job offers that I got from, from over, from down south. And okay. He, I think he right. was like, I will solve the issue. <laughs> yeah. By, right. By hiring let's, Wade let's out grab of there. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> so now yeah. Jake is no longer tempted to take a job offer to go down to Texas in Texas. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, no. So we are super excited. Like even, and I hope folks like even just hearing about what you were up to, the things you were around somebody with your experience is really, really valuable. And even as you've been here, like conversations that we've been having about Canon around the office in the past, about like what we want to see, what we want to do. And then I feel like conversations that we've recently had now that you're here, mm-hmm. things are really solidifying into, a, you know, this is a media company. Right. You know, we, we 
our baseline will always be books. Our first right. love is always books, but mm-hmm. to do stuff, to be relevant, mm-hmm. you know, I've said on the podcast before how many hours of free audio we put out. Right. Just to like stay as a baseline relevant mm-hmm. company. Yeah, um, absolutely. Is, is nuts. And so, so having somebody with the experience you have, super, super, super valuable. Yeah, so, that's tons of fun, man. Yeah, I, I think that the knowing that the audience grows the more content you put out, yep. it definitely gives the lie to the idea that people don't have a like people have a it, like inherently short attention span. Right. It's just that people have been trained in a lot of ways to watch frivolous stuff, but they are giving their time to things. They're giving their time to content, and I think that the the content that Canon is putting out, a lot of um, companies do have a content problem where they're going like, "What are we going to do? Yep. How are we going to come up with the next thing?" the authors here have such wisdom and have built it up over the course of decades and have learned how to write and learn how to speak well. These skills that people have developed here that, you know, the folks who started Logos School and the folks who started NSA recognized as the skills that civilizations are built on. Now it's just using the kind of medium of the day to give those people platforms. And, And it's an amazing thing because there it's it's not like like Doug didn't go to uh, Doug didn't learn what he learned to be a good podcaster you know and and like he wasn't studying and going how can i be the best at you know writing blogs but yeah. it's just that the blog came at the right time yep. and he started doing the blog and then the podcast came at the right time he started doing the podcast but the the skills of um the skills that the folks that the authors at Canon have are the skills that differentiate are, are the skills that actually set people apart and make people go, how have I not found this before? And, and that feeling is because these people have been going for decades. Totally. And, and have been making stuff that's incredibly valuable for a long time. And then so when people come in at this date, they're able to have the feeling of, oh, great, there's more. There's always, there's always decades of stuff behind just this one six or seven minute May blog post that I watch, which is a, a freeing thing for me to know that it's not just, you know, a lot of content creators are just saying their emotional reactions and they may be able to say it in a cool way or yeah. in an engaging way. That's, that's what a lot of right-wing media is. It's very reactive. It's here's a stimulus and I'm going to react on camera. And that is enough for a lot of people, or at least people are able to live vicariously through a reaction. And Canon is the kind of place where there is, there's no reactivity, or at least there's, there's not the reactiveness in the same way that there is in like what people would call conservative media or in Christian media. Um, there is a long-term let's build something that's going to last vision that informs all of the responses to topical things or some video that comes across your feed. And I think that you can be trained by a lot of right-wing media or conservative media just to be reactive or just to be all talk and just be able to say like, this is what we need to be doing, or that's what we need to be doing. This is a place where people have just been doing it and yeah. not asking yeah. permission. Like right. what we were talking about, they, like they didn't, like Canon didn't go, well, if we're going to publish books, then I need to go sell all of our books to a bunch of other, it was just like, well, we can probably print these here, right? Like yeah. how much does a printer cost? You we know? didn't go to the board of publishers. Yeah, exactly. They, it's like one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, there's like a certain corridor, dark corridor of Twitter. Okay. And we oft, often hear, it's like a made up publishing house. Okay. It's yeah. just like, well, number one, they're all made up. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. God didn't like drop the- Some guy 
named yeah. Charles Scribner just started. <laughs> okay. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Right. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's uh, an extremely productive place. And like you're saying, I think essentially just assuming the center mm-hmm. in a way that, because even as you were talking about the conservative media and like insecurities in terms of like, well, uh, we have a right wing president, which means like we got to deal with numbers. So right. we got to like, you know, there's that sort of thing. I think it kind of sounds exhausting. Um, Absolutely. And, and maybe inherent into the conservative thing. It's wh- mm-hmm. why we're very grateful for George Gilder's work of just, right. you know, this is just the way the world is. You're not mm-hmm. having to like sit on top of, you're not a zit on like Karl Marx's face mm-hmm. trying to just like bring him down. Yeah, absolutely. You're just, this is the way the world is. Yeah. And thinking, I think a lot of people think of media as having to just ride the trends, like the stock market, you know, where it's like, if the market's up, then we're up. And if, (laughs) if the market's down, we're down, but the people aren't trying to build something that actually succeeds when the world falls apart. And isn't it wild that everybody's going, Hey, we need to be in physical media now. Uh, we need to, we need to actually have printers. You know, and it's not enough just to have a blog or it's not enough just to have a podcast and getting people's physical addresses and sending out direct mail isn't all of a sudden coming back because you can't censor that because I can just put a postage stamp on something and send it out. And that is my advertising. I don't have to send it to Facebook first, wait for their approval and get it back. And that's so Canon is ahead of the times by continuing to print books. And uh, continue to make, I, I think, the best books that are coming out now, which is a ton of fun to be a part of. So if you are wishy-washy on Canon, know that Wade moved to Moscow for Canon. Oh, yeah, That should yeah. be enough. That, that should be your, uh, yeah. well, Wade did that. So I'll <laughs> buy that book from them. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. It, it, it really is cool to be, be on Team Canon. Uh, I love it. Awesome, dude. Thanks for coming. And uh Excited to see whatever it is that uh, you do at Canon <laughs> in the future. <laughs>